Uh, join me as we pray together. <clears throat> Father, we're aware that when we pray prayers like that, we really can't be playing games with you. Uh, when we say, search me deep within. We acknowledge before you, Lord, that the, some of the ways in which we are twisted and have gone off the mark and have taken the wrong road and have crossed the boundaries are pretty deep and we're not able to see them far. And so we ask you, Lord, whatever you do in our hearts, let it be real and let it be true. Search us deep within that you might cleanse us of hidden sin. And if we're not yet sincere about a prayer like that, I pray that even in the process of hearing your word, that you will just continue to grip our hearts. We, we need your word as much to assure us that you love us, as much to search us deep within, Father. That in all that we say and do, I trust, Father, that the outside and the inside will be in, in, in good sync and harmony as much as we know it. We are not a perfect people, but thank you that you have asked us to keep moving towards perfection because our Father in heaven is perfect. This is the end for which we have been made and I trust again that this day as we hear your word you will remind us again. To that end we ask that you will destroy every demonic interference as those words reminded us we, the sanctuary is battleground so we again put on the whole armor of God, we take the sword of the spirit, we resist the enemy, we command him to depart from this place and we offer our minds and our hearts to you this day. Lord reign in us we pray in Jesus name. Amen. <clears throat> When I was growing up as a teenager, my father introduced me to a British humorist by the name of P.G. Woodhouse. Some of you may have read him. He's a, just, it was all a situational comedy and satire on the British aristocracy. He was the man who invented Jeeves, the famous butler that always was getting his uh, somewhat dim-witted uh, boss out of trouble all the time. You know. Woodhouse has been cre- credited with introducing almost 50 words into the English language, which is a pretty remarkable achievement. Uh, I learned this past week, though, in my research for today's message, that uh, in the Encyclopedia of Ethics, written in the mid-90s, Jesus Christ is, in, is credited with being the person, I mean, through the Gospels, having, have, having introduced a particular word and its corresponding character into the moral vocabulary of the entire Western world. You know what that word is? Hypocrisy. Interesting, isn't it? Its original uh, roots are in Greek theater where actors played a part, and some of them often played more than one part, and they would have different masks and whip them back and forth, playing different characters. Nobody was what they seemed like. And Jesus' original hearers would have known this connection, because in first century Palestine, there were plenty of excellent theaters. Apparently there was one in a town called Sephoris, just not too far away from Nazareth. I'm telling you all that because in our study on the Sermon on the Mount, we've come to a passage today in chapter 6, where he uses that word hypocrite or hypocrisy three times. Jesus is continuing to expound for us a central exhortation that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees if we are to truly be known and proved as citizens of the kingdom of God. And in the last four or five messages, we've been looking at the internal attitudes that characterize this kind of righteousness. When it comes to anger, when it comes to lust, when it comes to our word being true and not using words and oaths to cleverly disguise our intentions of never fulfilling what we are saying. And then last week we talked about the kind of attitudes that are needed to resist evil and love our enemies. In chapter 6, Jesus is going to talk about two major obstacles to living the kind of internal righteousness that expresses itself in appropriate external action. And the first of them we'll look at today and the next one two weeks from now. Uh, This is on hypocrisy. So chapter 6 verse 1, 
He says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. This is really the central thesis of the first 18 verses of chapter 6. Don't do your acts of righteousness in order to be seen by people. If you do, you're going to lose out on the reward that comes from God. And then Jesus uses three of pillars of Jewish piety, prayer, giving, and fasting, to expand and illustrate. So let's read the text together. Uh, there's a section in the middle on the Lord's Prayer that, that I'm not going to be talking about today. Next week we'll be focusing on that subject. So read this with me. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. For when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He kind of says the same thing three times over in three different settings. See, the the Pharisees of Jesus' time found ways in which to give and pray, but do it in public, in the streets and in the synagogues as well, so that by being seen by other people, they would have a reputation of being godly or spiritual people. Now, of course, when it comes to fasting, you can't really show anybody that you're fasting, right? Because in fasting, you're not doing something. So it isn't evident. So they found ways to disfigure their faces to let everybody know that they were also fasting at that time. This is what Jesus called hypocrisy. And he said, you have your reward in each case. The reward in this case is what human beings think of you. But you've lost the reward that comes from God. The only person that ought to matter when it comes to praying, giving and fasting is not at all impressed with this impression that you have created and that everybody seems to value so highly. That is the righteousness of the Pharisees. Now what does it mean for our righteousness to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? I need to tell you something that it doesn't mean. And we'll be clarifying that as we move along. I don't think Jesus is saying, don't let anybody see your life of righteousness. That wouldn't fit. Because earlier on in chapter 5, he said, let your light show shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify God the Father. So Jesus is not saying, make sure that nobody ever finds out that you do these things. That's not what he's talking about at all. Nor is he calling for a privatized Christianity. We live in a kind of world that is totally secular and they don't care so long as we practice our religion in private. Oh, you can go to church if you want. You can pray. You can do all those things. Just don't bring it out into the marketplace on Monday. Don't tell us how we should run our businesses. Don't put your finger in the educational system, in the legal system. We don't want that. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He wants our religion to be very public in that sense. We need to live out these righteousness right in the world. So he's not calling for a privatized expression of our faith. What he is saying specifically is only one thing. Never do any of these things with the sole motivation that people's opinion of you might be something as opposed to something else. That's the only point that he's making. 
And so he says, if you're giving, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And we'll come to that in a minute. When you're praying, go into the closet, shut the door and pray in secret. And when you fast, put on the cologne, have a nice shower. Let everybody know that you're perfectly normal. That's basically what he's saying. Okay, so that's what the text says. I want to just wind it forward 21 centuries to where we are right now. And look at what these might mean for you and me in each of these areas. First of all, he says, when you give. I don't think he's saying you shouldn't let anybody know. Don't tell the treasurer of the church how much you give. Well, you won't get an income tax receipt at the end of it. Don't fill it out in your income tax form because then you're letting the uh, Revenue Canada know about it. I don't think what he's talking about at all. Nor is he saying don't ever tell God stories about the financial dimension of your life. Well, if God is not working in the financial dimension of our life, I doubt whether he's working at all in the Western world because it is the biggest idol that we have. I mean, the King David. King David gave a specific account. This much gold and silver I have given. And the leaders were impressed, not with him, inspired to give more, and people rejoiced. It was an explosion of praise and worship as a result of that. So I don't think that's what he's talking about when he says, do it in secret. What is he saying then? What is he telling us not to do? Okay, I have to make up some things at this point, just so you get the point. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> Most of you use this to give. Okay? Let's say one particular weekend, you, that's the time you're filling out your imagined contribution. And if you did it like me, I've just filled it out in bulk each year. All he's saying is when the offering plate comes out and the amount is large, don't put it face up so the person next to you can see. But it equally means if whatever you're giving is small, don't put it face down so nobody can see it. That is just as much a preoccupation with what people will think. Don't drop hints in your conversation that you are a liberal giver. And we can all find ways to do that. You know that. That's the kind of thing that he's talking about. Creating impressions and worried about what people might think or not think. Really he's saying, when it comes to giving, it's an act of worship. And in worship, there is only one person that matters and what he thinks about it. And that is God. And so therefore, I think this is what it means for the offering. It simply means, when you take it out of your pocket, put it on whichever way it shows up. It doesn't matter, you see. If it's large and people see it, no problem. If it's small and people see it, no problem. Nobody sees it, no problem. Because you don't really care. The whole focus is on the one person who already knows. That's the main focus. Just do it naturally. And when he says, don't let your left hand know what your right, right hand know what your left hand is doing. Now come on, that can't be literal. One part of your body knows what the other part's doing, right? Except. Except when you start doing something so spontaneously, so naturally. Like I've driven stick shift cars all my life for 40 odd years now. I don't really find myself having a dialogue as now time to shift into second gear. Or third or reverse. This hand just keeps moving through the H by itself. This hand really doesn't even know what's going on. That's the picture. He's saying, let our focus on, be, on God be so exclusive. And our giving such a natural outflow of what's going on inside. That we're not even aware of it. That's the kind of thing that's going on in here. That's what worship is when it comes to a matter of giving. Now, how about prayer? I don't think Jesus can be saying, don't pray in public. He prayed in public all the time. The early church would have got it completely wrong because they had public prayer meetings all through the book of Acts. In fact, it was Jesus praying in public that made the disciples come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him into the Garden of Gethsemane when he was going to be praying. So it couldn't be, don't pray in public. 
And by the way, you can close the door in such a way to let everybody know that you're going to pray, be praying, right? So a closed door can be very much a focus on human beings. So what Jesus is saying is a lot, that's a lot more to it than just a mechanical obedience. I think what he's saying is, where's your focus when you pray? Don't pray in order to create impressions. I don't know about you, but I've always been bothered when people put on a God voice when they pray. You know, dear God, with the emphasis on the D at the end of it. You know? I had a young man come to me yesterday after the service. He said, well, actually, I, don't, I, don't dis- I disagree with you. He said, because he mentioned a mentor of his. He said, he prayed that way with a different voice. He said, but I always felt his prayers were genuine. And then he said something very interesting. He said, but that's the way he prayed in private too. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. I think basically what he is saying here is, forget about the people. It's an act of worship. And so the only person that matters is the one with whom you're praying. And however you, that demands, if you're going to pray it in public a certain way, do it in private the same way. If you happen to be engaging with God, and at that moment, you, what that engagement requires your prayer to be loud and emotional, do it exactly the same way when you're in public. If your interaction with God at that particular moment in private would be appropriate to be quiet and soft, then do it quietly and softly in private as well. Don't adjust the dialogue because of who is there or who is not there. By the way, may I also say something else? To not pray because people might think you're not very good at praying is equally a problem. Because that also is a preoccupation. Some of you don't come for our prayer meetings because you are more worried about what people are going to think. That's hypocrisy. Because the only person that matters is the one that you are praying to. Let your focus be on him. Then how about fasting? Again, he couldn't be saying, don't let anybody else know. Our 30-hour famine, our kids fasted together, and they did it together because it was an encouragement to one another. They had to approach you and me to sponsor them, so they had to tell us as well. Obviously, I don't think they were violating God's commandments, so I don't think he's saying, don't tell anybody. Especially if you're in a family and you're the one person fasting and others aren't. Some of them are going to know. All he says is, don't, don't put on appearance. You know, become so somber and irritable and frustrated to let everybody know that you're fasting and to leave you alone, you know. Or, or drop hints. Somebody comes to you when you're fasting on a longer fast maybe and says, hey, can you come and help me move? Just say no. You don't need to add the sentences because you see, I'm really fasting these days and it really makes one weak when you're fasting, so I guess I can't come. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. Creating impressions. He said, no, just like in giving, just like in praying, the fasting focus has got to be on God. And what does it mean to have a focus on God when you're fasting? Jesus said it when the disciples came to him and said, why don't your disciples fast? He said, they're not going to fast when the bridegroom is present, but the bridegroom is going to be taken away from them and then they will fast. Fasting, which is often combined with prayer, almost often combined with prayer, is an expression of hunger for the bridegroom's presence. That's what matters. The whole focus is upon God. I think those are some 21st century equivalents of what Jesus is talking to us about when we fast, when we pray, when we give. What I want to do now for the rest of the message is kind of step back a little bit from these three specifics to look at some three very broad sweep issues that are also raised by the same text. Notice first of all that Jesus doesn't say if. He doesn't say, if you fast, if you pray, if you give. He says, when you fast, when you pray, when you give. Jesus took it for granted that those who were serious about following him were people who gave, fasted, and prayed. 
That's not the prevailing climate in the 21st century church. I want you to follow me as I read through a fairly extensive quotation from Dallas Willard. It's long, but it's very easy to understand. Uh, Probably hard to stomach because it gets right to what we talked about in the song, Search Me Deep Within. Uh, Because he says it so beautifully and it's so appropriate. He said, it is almost impossible in the thought climate of today's Western world to appreciate just how utterly unnecessary it was for Jesus in the world in which he lived to say that Christians should fast, get alone, study, give, and so forth as regular disciplines of the spiritual life. We, of course, tend to think of ascetic practices as oddities of human history. It's an illusion created in part by our own conviction that our unrestrained natural impulse is in itself a good thing. But thoughtful and religiously devout people of the classical and Hellenistic or Greek world, from the Ganges to the Tiber, knew that the mind and body of the human being had to be rigorously disciplined to achieve a decent individual and social existence. This is not something Jesus had to prove or even explicitly state to his audience. It was all wisdom gleaned from millennia of collective human experience. The preeminence of the feel-good mentality in our world is what makes it impossible for many people now even to imagine what Jesus, Paul, and his contemporaries accepted as a fact of life. Our communities and our churches are thickly populated with people who are paralyzed by the devotion and willing bondage to how they feel. Whenever the early Christians looked, or should be wherever, sorry, wherever the early Christians looked, they saw examples of the practice of solitude, fasting, prayer, private study, communal study, worship and service and giving to mention only some of the more obvious disciplines for spiritual life. Everybody took these things for granted. We haven't. We don't. See, the, the Sermon on the Mount is not just another bunch of rules to follow. It has to do with learning to live the way Jesus lived. And the spiritual disciplines, which Jesus took for granted here, are not ends in themselves. They are the means by which hopefully, gradually, we will become more and more like Jesus. And then translate that and live it out. May is haven for sports fans. Baseball is well underway. Basketball playoffs are reaching their climax. Uh, Hockey playoffs are at that point. Golf is well underway as well. And so people love to watch. And all these sportsmen in every field have amazing abilities to do things that, I mean, the basketball players defy gravity all the time, you know. And how these skaters stop and start the way to do is beyond me. But here's the point. What enables them to do those awesome feats at the moment when they need it instinctively is not because they just played the game. It's because of the hours and hours of a strict regimen of training and practice that nobody sees. That's what enables them to function that way when it is needed. Now, can you imagine... A coach getting a neophyte on the team and saying, look, you're going to become like one of those people one day. So all I want you to do is to watch films and then go try harder. You're not going to get very far. Because as those of you who have taken second base know, it's not about trying harder. No, a wise coach instead says, hey, there's going to be years before you get there. I've got a gymnasium appointment for you tomorrow morning. And he prescribes for them a rigid program of gymnasium, workouts, diets, all kinds of things, along with watching films and practices and imitation. And eventually they begin to change. Now the point is not the training program. What would you think of somebody who said, I want to enroll in hockey and be a great player because I can hardly wait to lift weights every morning. 
something would be wrong, right? The goal is to have the exhilaration of playing hockey, not lift weights. But you've got to lift hockey weights if you want to play hockey that way and enjoy it. That's what the spiritual disciplines are all about. We can, people, we can be people who pray, fast, and give. And if nothing in our lives is changing, something's wrong, we miss the point. The point is to learn to live like Jesus. The spiritual disciplines are God's wise training program to hopefully become like that. So I don't want you to miss that. And those of you who have already taken first base and have never taken second base, please mark down October 28th in your calendar. Right now, 3 o'clock to 7 o'clock, Sunday, October 28th. Mark it down and show up in second base. Because all of second base has been rewritten to try and get a a 30-minute training program that is accessible to us that hopefully can get us started on this way. And if you've taken second base and forgotten all about it, get your notes out, review this stuff, and get on the training program again. Okay? Spiritual disciplines, when, not, if, that's the first thing. The second thing I want to talk about is how deep the preoccupation for how others think about us is woven into each one of us. John Ortberg in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, calls it impression management. He gives this illustration. I want to give you one that came to my mind. He talks about how when we are telling a story or a sermon, you know, that involves an incident that we saw on TV. He said, very few of us are content to simply say, the other night when I was watching TV, I saw this and so. He says, most of us are tempted to add, I don't really watch a lot of TV, but the other night. He said, why do you want to add those words at the beginning? Because you are so afraid that if you didn't do it, they're going to think that you're wasting a lot of time watching TV. So I've got to manage that impression somehow and massage it. That's impression management. Here's one thing that came to my mind. Imagine yourself sitting in a room. There's only so many chairs and you came in early enough and you've got a chair. Now somebody else comes into the room. They need a seat. And, and you kind of go through the motions of getting up out of the chair, but you manage to do it slowly and fumble enough that somebody else beats you to it. And then they get to sit down. And guess what? You have the chair and you have created the impression that you're a very humble person that really uh, was ready to offer the chair to someone else. That's impression management, folks. And if you want to know how come I know that, I've done that. And I think if we're honest, all of us can confess to that kind of impression management. We want to con- and pride is never so ugly as when it is pretending to be humble. And that's exactly what goes on in impression management. And our wise ancestors in the Christian faith had a particular spiritual discipline that Jesus took for granted, which really is woven through all these other three disciplines. It's the discipline of secrecy. It's like pray, it's praying for somebody and never letting them know. It's giving, but never letting anybody know. And you think if it's easy, try doing it. And here's what Ortberg says. He says, nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service. And nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like secret service. The flesh whines against service, but screams against hidden service. It strains and pulls for honor and recognition. Closely related to the discipline of secrecy to handle this problem of impression management is the discipline of silence. Ortberg puts it this way. He says, attempting to control the way others think of us is one of the primary uses we put words to in contemporary society. Human conversation is largely an endless attempt to convince others that we are more assertive or clever or gentle or successful than they might think if we did not carefully educate themselves. Maybe this is why the Bible says, where words are many, sin is not very far behind. I know certainly God has been dealing with me this week on that subject. Where words are many, 
sin is not too far behind. Maybe the discipline of silence gets to the heart of that sin of how we use words to manage reputations or fiercely defend them if we think they're being attacked in some way. So that's the second thing I want to mention. The third one has to do with the issue of rewards. He said those who fast, pray and give in order to be seen by people already have their reward. And what is their reward? Their reward is they've been successful in their impression management program. They have managed to create an impression, a favorable impression about themselves and somebody else. But I want to talk about the cost. Luke 16, 15 says, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's eyes. In other words, he says, if you've spent a lot of time and effort managing impressions and then justifying yourself before others, guess what? If you succeed, God's not impressed at all with your success. Whatever you value so highly is detestable in his sight. I think here's another cost. John 5.44 How can you believe if you accept praise from one another yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? When our focus is on impression management and not dealing with the one who knows our hearts, he says it becomes difficult if not impossible to believe. I mean, we went through that whole series on believing God last October to December. We're learning that it's all about a life of faith. We've learned that the Imagine campaign is all about a life of faith. And he says, if you're focusing on managing impressions and defending them and creating impressions, especially in the religious dimension of your life, you're making it more and more difficult for yourself to believe. And without faith, we know it is impossible to please God. So all our giving, all our fasting, all our praying, we have succeeded in impressing people, but not God. And there's something else that I should have, should have put in here. We become codependent. We become codependent on those whose impressions are important to us. Os Guinness tells in his book, The Call, about a pastor of a successful, large, sorry, I should say large megachurch judged successful by the criterion of size. And he confessed to Guinness, he says, every Sunday when I get up to preach and look into their eyes, he said, I am afraid. I am afraid because I know I am only two weeks away from losing them to another church down the street. And Guinness makes the observation, we are producing a leadership that is codependent on followership. That's what will happen. If we begin to depend upon the impressions of people, we become, you're setting yourself up for codependency of one form or another. And this was the sentence that sent shivers down my spine. I read it Wednesday. The ego swells while the soul shrivels. Burn it into your hearts. If you're successful in this kind of stuff, your ego may be swelling, but your soul is shriveling up on the inside. That ought to terrify you as it did me. Now, what about the other side? What about the reward of God for secrecy? This is just as important. God doesn't just scare us. He he draws us to himself. I think faith is obviously one. John 5.44 says, if you're looking for praise from men, you're not going to be able to believe. I think the corollary, you look for faith, you look for praise from God, focus upon Him, your faith's going to increase. But I think freedom perhaps is even a bigger issue. Freedom from this tyranny on the inside. Freedom from this codependency. And Ortberg puts it this way, the more we practice secrecy, the more we get freed from the internal compulsion to manage our impressions. To create and maintain a reputation to spend huge amounts of energy defending ourselves when that impression is challenged. You see, just just not doing it is not free. That's step one. Better than nothing. But even if you abandon all attempts to manage your reputation, 
Even if you refuse to defend yourself, but you want to on the inside, you're still not free. You're still being agitated. The freedom I think that God gives to us is that eventually it will be like our right hand not knowing what our left hand. Eventually we may hope to be able to get to the point where we just don't care in that proper sense about creating impressions. And when those impressions are challenged, we can just let God be our defenders. I know that's the be perfect as my father in heaven is perfect end, but we can certainly keep moving in that direction. And of course the exact opposite happens. The soul is enriched while the ego shrivels. Which one do you want? You want a shriveled up soul while an ego is enlarged? Or do you want a soul that is enlarging and the ego is being taken care of by God? You see, ultimately, this is the principle you need to keep in mind. The source of the reward determines its quality. Human opinion is one source of the reward. These people had their reward. And because the source is human, the characteristics of the reward are human. Temporal, fading, shallow, and ultimately unsatisfying. If the source is God, the reward is like God. Eternal, enduring, rich, and deeply satisfying. Let me close with the story of, of one example that, of this. It's just a small white envelope stuck among the branches of our Christmas tree at home. <clears throat> no name, no identification, no inscription. It has peeked through the branches of our tree for the past 10 years or so. It all began because my husband Mike hated Christmas. Oh no, not the true meaning of Christmas, but the commercial aspects of it. Overspending, the frantic running around at the last minute, the gifts given in desperation. Knowing he felt this way, I decided one year to bypass the usual shirts, sweaters and ties I bought for him. Excuse me. I reached for something special just for Mike. Our son Kevin was wrestling at the junior level at the school he attended. Shortly before Christmas, there was a non-league match against a team sponsored by an inner city church. These youngsters, dressed in sneakers so ragged that shoestrings seemed to be the only thing holding them up, presented a sharp contrast to our boys in their spiffy blue and gold uniforms and sparkling new wrestling shoes. As the match began, I was alarmed to see that the other team was wrestling without headgear. It was a luxury the ragtag team obviously could not afford. We ended up walloping them. As each of their boys got up from the mat, he swaggered around in his tatters with false bravado, a kind of street pride that couldn't acknowledge defeat. Mike shook his head sadly. I wish just one of them could have won, he said. They have a lot of potential, but losing like this could take the heart right out of them. <clears throat> That's when the idea for his present came. That afternoon, I went to a local sporting goods store and bought an assortment of wrestling headgear and shoes and sent them anonymously to the inner city church. On Christmas Eve, I placed an envelope on the tree, the note inside telling Mike what I had done and that this was his gift from me. His smile was the brightest thing about Christmas that year. Each Christmas I followed the tradition. One year sending a group of mentally handicapped youngsters to a hockey game. Another year giving a check to a pair of elderly brothers whose home had burned to the ground the week before Christmas. All anonymous. The envelope became the highlight of our Christmas. It was always the last thing opened on Christmas morning and our children would stand with wide-eyed anticipation as dad lifted the envelope from the tree to reveal its contents. As the children grew, the envelope never lost its allure. The story doesn't end there. We soon lost Mike to cancer. When Christmas rolled around, I was so wrapped up in grief that I barely got up the tree. But on Christmas Eve, I placed an envelope on the tree, and in the morning it was joined by three more. Each of our children had placed an envelope on the tree for their dad. This tradition has grown and someday will expand even further with our grandchildren standing around the tree with wide-eyed anticipation watching as their fathers take down the envelopes. That's an enlarged soul while the ego is shriveling. That's the reward that comes from heaven that is enduring, rich, and deeply satisfying.
This is the question I want to leave with you as the worship team comes and leads us in some songs of reflection as we begin to deal with the Father, the only one that matters. What kind of reward do you want? May God grant to each one of you the alertness to recognize every opportunity every day to enlarge your souls and let your souls shrink a little bit more. Go in Jesus' name.